Hey y'all, it's Lindsay. Here it is, the final episode of the Arc of Justice from Here to Equality miniseries. Wow, <laughs> it's been a journey. This episode is a little different too, because it first premiered as a virtual live event. And throughout the episode, you'll hear from our guides, Duke Sanford School of Public Policy professor, William Sandy Darity Jr. and Kirsten Mullen. They co-authored the book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. But you'll also hear from some of today's most prominent advocates for reparations. This version of the event has been modified for our podcast feed. So let's get into it. Here's the final chapter of the Ark of Justice. In our podcast series, The Ark of Justice, we have been building a case that the economic struggles many Black people face today have roots in policy choices made by the federal government. That starts with slavery, which was actually not so long ago. Well, uh, my name is Vivian Hortense King McClinton. I'll be uh, 102 tomorrow. My grandparents were brought as slaves. Uh, my grandfather from uh, Scriven County, Georgia. We talked about how our nation's harsh history of slavery has been whitewashed from the very start. I kind of just instinctively said, oh, you mean the workspace of the slaves. And she said, the servants. There's no evidence in the historical record that they weren't paid. Then there's how the U.S. government handled land, the first building block of wealth. The formerly enslaved were promised land of their own, 40 acres and a mule. You probably heard the phrase 40 acres and a mule. 40 acres and a mule. We're going to give every last one of you 40 acres and a mule. But then the government reneged on that promise. Meanwhile, at around the same time, the federal government granted land in 160-acre plots to 1.5 million white families. So many people who have wealth are connected to this myth that it exists because of their own making. It's quite possible that many of them don't themselves know that the origin of their family's wealth is a federal policy called the Homestead Act. We talked about housing discrimination supported and enabled by the federal government, policies that excluded black people, like a wall in Detroit. What do you know about the wall? Do you know why it was built? I think it was built for separation, like blacks and whites. On one side of the wall, you had an all-white neighborhood, and this would be a prime site for additional bank loans denied the folks who were black living on the other side of the wall. Policy after policy that was weighted, not just away from black people, but toward white people. The government provided extra resources for many, many, many white Americans and very few black Americans. The fact of the matter is everybody earned it, but only white folks got it. A long trail of government-sanctioned anti-black violence also weaves through U.S. history. Again and again, white mobs targeted black people, black homes, and black businesses. In Tulsa, in Chicago, in Atlanta, 
in Wilmington. I had these great aunts and they were little girls at school when they saw these people being shot down in the street. I want to read to you from page one of the book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century by Professor William Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullen. Racism and discrimination have perpetually crippled Black economic opportunities. At several historic moments, the trajectory of racial inequality could have been altered dramatically. But at each juncture, the road chosen did not lead to a just and fair America. Federal policy lies at the heart of the racial wealth disparity that we observe today. Today, we're going to talk about exactly what the federal government can do to make amends for its actions. Ways and Means presents The Arc of Justice. In this episode, reparations. What might a U.S. reparations program look like? How feasible is it? And how would it work? Hey everybody, I'm Lindsay Foster Thomas. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you could be anywhere in the world, but you've decided to be here for this important and timely conversation, so thank you. And thanks especially to Kirsten Mullen and Sandy Darity. They're gonna guide us through this final episode of the series, and they're gonna make sure that we spend this hour thinking more critically about the topic of reparations. So, Sandy, Kirsten, I wanted to just start this conversation off with a question to the two of you. Why should the U.S. consider a program for reparations? We wanted to talk about what, what reparations, you know, what reparations really is yeah. and what it is not. Mm -hmm. uh, we think it's important to establish the central characteristics of reparations. Uh, so we talk about the program of ARC, acknowledgement, redress, and closure for grievous injustices whites have inflicted upon Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Acknowledgement speaks to all three phases of American history. Slavery, the fiery crucible from which all of the harms spring. Then nearly 100 years of legal segregation or Jim Crow that was maintained with hundreds of white terror campaigns that resulted in the destruction and confiscation of black property and uh, the loss of black lives across the country. Then the third phase upon which we make this case reparation is the one we are in presently, where racial disparities in wealth, income, education, health, sentencing, and incarceration, political participation, and subsequent opportunities to engage in American political and social life are immense. Um, you know, but redress must be structured to eliminate the racial wealth gap. So acknowledgement requires a commitment to restitution or redress. And from our perspective, uh, the act of redress is an act of justice. It's a paying of a debt that has not been met for 155 years in the United States. And it's a debt that must be met by bringing Black American wealth into conformity with the average level of wealth that is held by white Americans. Uh, we argue in From Here to Equality that uh, the reason we observe the staggering racial wealth gap in the United States is because of the cumulative intergenerational effects of the atrocities that 
that we are we are talking about today. Uh, yes. Black people constitute about 12% of the nation's population, but possess less than 2% of the nation's wealth. This uh, results in a situation where the average black household has about $840,000 less in net worth than the average white household. And so an objective of the redress component of uh, the reparations project must be bringing black wealth into consistency with black representation in the population. And this would require at least $11 trillion in expenditure. Uh, the federal government should uh, should meet the bill because it sanctioned slavery. And after the Civil War ended, it promised and then denied the recently emancipated black population 40 acre land grants while making over 250 million acres of land available to white Americans, including recent immigrants in 160 acre plots under the auspices of the Homestead Acts. The Homestead Acts were essentially an investment in white America the failure to provide the 40-acre land grants was a disinvestment in Black America. And then the third prong for the case reparations, closure. Closure involves mutual conciliation between African-Americans and the beneficiaries of slavery, legal segregation, and ongoing discrimination toward Blacks. Americans would come to terms over the past and the present and create a new and transformed United States of America. When the reparations program is executed and racial equality is achieved, African-Americans would make no further claims for race-specific policies on their behalf from the American government. So this is the assumption that the racial wealth gap would be eliminated. Uh, but all this would be on the assumption that no new race-specific in, uh, injustices would be inflicted on Black people. Wow. Okay. So... I'm going to put a pin in some of that because um, we, we're going to talk expansively about the plan for reparations that you have laid out in your book, From Here to Equality, toward the end of this hour. I do just want to note, just for a second, though, that it is so interesting we're having this conversation today, the day after a U.S. House committee has voted to advance a bill that would establish a slavery reparations commission. You know, if you saw this, like, this headline come across your Twitter timeline or something overnight. This does not mean reparations is happening. Um, but we are going to talk later about what H.R. 40 is and isn't, and we're, we'll talk more about your plan. So um, thank you. We're going to hear much more from you throughout this hour. And right now I want to introduce our first guest, who had a chance recently to vote for a local legislation bill in Evanston, Illinois. This legislation was billed as reparations, but she voted no. And she's an older woman there. She says that real reparations are long overdue. In Evanston, Illinois, the city council has agreed to pay black residents reparations for historic housing discrimination, making it the first U.S. city to adopt such a measure. City council members voting on giving out $400,000. That would be the first round of payments. The city's committed to spending $10 million on this over the next 10 years. 
The money set to compensate families facing wealth gaps after suffering decades of racial discrimination. For decades, black residents of Evanston were subjected to redlining, which prevented them from obtaining bank loans to purchase property. This is a flawed program. But a group calling itself, Evanston rejects racist reparations, held a rally earlier this month, saying the vote is being rushed for a plan that is not complete. In Evanston Alderwoman Cicely Fleming, she was the only member of the city council to vote against the measure this week. Cicely Fleming, welcome to the Arc of Justice. It's good to have you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so was there a moment when you decided you were not going to vote for this program? Uh, there were there were many moments, actually. Um, I think it started a couple weeks before as we started as a council to just look at our calendars, and I saw that it was coming up for um, the vote in the conversation. Um, and I started immediately getting questions from Black residents, asking them what it was, what, what it wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I started looking into it, I realized it was not probably what people thought it was going to be. And therefore, I was not going to be able to support it. Okay. So how do you, um, you say you support reparations, but how do you reconcile your support for reparations with your vote on this resolution? Well, I think if you look and even looking at that clip you put together, right, it, in that clip, it talks about $400,000, $25,000 payments to Black families. Mm -hmm. And that is not what we're offering. We're offering $25,000 in housing grants that are paid on your behalf directly to banks or $25,000 in essentially home improvement projects. And mm -hmm. so as a housing program, it is great. You know, it models a lot of other housing programs you see, whether it's first time home buyers or, or other qualifiers, but it is not reparations. And I felt like at this time in the country, if we're ever going to make any progress, we have to be true to what it is and what it isn't. And I think um, because of my concern with the kind of the press that had gone out before and is currently going out, it was going to be very important for me to stick to my personal convictions, also that of which I heard from many African-Americans in our town saying, hey, we, we simply don't think that this program is reparation. So can you talk about some just specific weaknesses in the Evanston plan that you, you couldn't get behind? Yes. If I'm looking at this plan as a policymaker in terms of a housing plan, it's, it's fine. It's not the best one I've ever seen, but it's a fine housing plan. Okay. If I'm saying it is, it is reparations, and as Sandy and um, Kristen so you know eloquently laid out for rep what reparations is, this does not fit the criteria. The main thing I heard about and the main thing I had some frustrations about was this money is going directly to the bank, right? And so we know, we all know the role that the banks play, you know, presently and, and past. And all kind of harms, whether it's housing or a variety of things for Black people. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that we're giving money to the banks, mm -hmm. you know, really was kind of an offense to a lot of people. Um, so, so that was part of the qualifier for me that did, took this out of the realm of reparations. Also, if we look at reparations, obviously looking at Germany, which is probably the largest case we can think of, um, that money was given to the survivors or families of, of Holocaust victims. And it, it, it goes on current day, right? And they were not told, hey, you have to, as this plan does, you can only buy a house or use this money towards a house that is in Evanston. So then we're even limiting people who qualify from where, they're, where they can live, right? So you have to give money to a bank, you have to live here in Evanston. Um, and all those qualifiers really should only come to, are you a descendant of someone who has been enslaved? Or obviously we're not atoning for slavery, we're looking at housing discrimination that we participated in. But mm -hmm. if you have been a descendant who had, you know, was was discriminated against or was part of redlining or whatever the criteria are, you should qualify. And that qualification shouldn't be based on where you live, where you choose to live, 
you know, if you have a mortgage, if you don't, we have a lot of seniors who are closer to the harm than I am, who don't have mortgages, who don't want to go at 90 or 80 years old and go buy a house, or who don't want home repairs. What they do want is cash to supplement their social security or their pensions. They might want cash to pay their property taxes. I mean, quite frankly, they might want cash to go buy a new car. And that's none of my business as the government. My, my role should be in reparations to address and kind of, you know, pay for, although there's not enough payment, the harms that we cause and allow you as an individual the respect to do what you want with those money. So I feel like I have to ask you about, you know, how this has affected you personally when everybody else is doing one thing and you decide to do something else. You know, that you know, that that's courageous. And um, it did, I imagine, take a lot of courage for you to say no in this case. Do you imagine that it's going to have consequences for you politically or even as a resident of Evanston? So, so that's the problem, right? In my role, we, we are worried more about consequences politically or personally, right? And that is why you have so many people in, in, in politics or, you know, elected office that don't often do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, I, I have no political aspirations. I'm starting my second term as a city council member here in Evanston. I'm happy to do that. I don't plan on having some lifelong career as public service. Um, for me personally, I'm, I'm sure this has garnered me less friends, but I am, again, I'm 45 year old woman, have lots of friends, I have a full life. I'm not looking to expand my friend group necessarily. Um, and so I really felt like, I, I, again, I struggle with this, right? I struggle with how to do this, not necessarily with the no vote, but making sure black people knew that I was supporting them, that my vote was not in opposition to anything in which they are owed by the federal government or local government. My vote was simply to say, we as a government have the, we have the charge to do the right thing and to, to label it the right thing, right? So my my vote no was really that this is not reparations. I, you know, again, as a housing plan for the 16 families that this will help, God bless them, I want them to have the money, but this is not reparations. And I know many people said, this is gonna further the national debate. You know, I don't work, I don't work in DC. I don't know what's gonna happen with the national debate, but I'm very clear on my role here in Evanston and what my obligations are to the citizens I represent and to telling the truth and what we do as government, because if we don't do that, we're gonna further divide our city, which has happened with this reparations bill. Lots of African-Americans feel like, you know, their their opposition, their questions were not answered. We just whisked it through under the, you know, under one vote we had um, without really hearing from the community. Cicely, thank you. I, I want you to stick around because um, Kirsten and Sandy talked to me a lot about local efforts like this one in Evanston. And Kirsten and Sandy, I'd love for you to just weigh in now um, about why you think local efforts like this one don't address the problem. Yeah, I just want to first just applaud, uh, you know, uh, Cicely, uh, her comments, just her courage, her conviction. Um, I mean, it really is admirable. And this, uh, walking integrity. And walking integrity, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but yes, I mean, I think it is important to um, to distinguish uh, between what we would call racial equity initiatives and reparations. When we're talking about reparations for us, one of the key goals is the elimination of the racial wealth gap. You know, a housing voucher is not going to uh, eliminate the racial wealth gap. And, and this is a plan that's, you know, for a small, you know, subset of Evanston residents, current residents. You know, is there an effort to identify the Black people who were harmed uh, over that 50-year period, 1919 to 1969, who, have, who now live elsewhere? I don't think so. 
Um, and as, as Cecily was saying, if you don't own a house or if you don't feel able to encumber the debt to take on a house, how will you benefit from this program? So no, it's not reparations. And we should not muddy the waters and confuse people and divert them from the real conversation about reparations for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. You know, a little bit earlier, we said that it would cost approximately uh, $11 trillion at minimum to uh, erase the racial wealth gap in the United States. And uh, the total combined budgets for all state and local governments in the United States is about $3.1 trillion. So if those entities combined all of their resources, they would have to do so for four consecutive years to meet minimum bill for reparations. They can't do it. And then final point, uh, it's the federal government that, that's the culpable party anyway, because it's the federal government that maintained the authority and legal framework that permitted all of these atrocities to take place, ranging from redlining to outright murder. Evanston Alderwoman Cicely Fleming, thank you so much for sharing your story today and taking our questions. Um, be best. I want to introduce our next guest, Mary Frances Berry. In addition to her work as a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, the acclaimed historian has served as chairperson of the U.S. Civil Rights Commission during four presidential administrations. She's also written a remarkable book about someone named Callie House, a formerly enslaved leader of the 19th century Black reparations movement. That's right. Efforts to secure reparations goes back. Um, today, Mary Frances Berry will be in conversation with a fellow historian, Duke Professor Adrian Lentz-Smith. Welcome to you both. And I'm going to turn it over to both of you right now. It is great to be here. And it was a pleasure to be part of the Arc of Justice podcast. Mary Frances Berry, on behalf of all of us, thank you for participating in this conversation. Thank you, and nice to be with you, and I'm glad you're questioning me. <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> I am too. Or convoying with me, <laughs> as it were. Let's open the conversation um, with a general question for people who don't know her story. Will you tell us a little bit about Callie House and her call for reparations? Yes, indeed. Callie House was a Black woman who had been a slave and who was born in 1861 into slavery. And she was a washerwoman. She had five children at the time that she did this uh, reparations movement at the, toward the end of the 19th century. She was a widow, her husband had died. Her father had fought as a soldier in the Union Army uh, as many black men who had been slaves uh, had done. And she decided that uh, after going to church and hearing about uh, somebody who wanted to start a movement to get pensions for slaves. And the man who was talking about it was a white guy who really wanted to get the money so he could say that it would be spent by the black people in the South and the white people would get it and that would renew the South. And she said, that doesn't make any sense. But how, why can't we have a movement like that ourselves? Why don't we ask the government? And she said that she had read in the Freedom School she went to the Constitution, and it said that people had a right to petition their government and ask them for things. And so she said, we should be able to do that ourselves and talk to several people. 
including a man who had formerly worked with this white guy and left. Uh, and they decided to start a movement and they went to churches. By that time, her children were old enough to, for the old ones to take care of the younger ones. And she moved around, they traveled all around. This was in Tennessee in Rutherford County. Um, and they got a lot of people to agree with them and they put together petitions which were, uh, if you could sign, you signed your name. If you couldn't, somebody would sign it for you and say what plantation you were on and who owned you and the rest of it. And those petitions are in the National Archives. And so what I did was after being told about this uh, by uh, an old guy who knew about Cali House, I did the research on it and I did the research in the archives and elsewhere to find out what she did. What she did was they asked the federal government to give a pension of $15 a month to any uh, former slave who was 70 years of, of age or older. And then they had a sliding scale as people were younger. And about the time they did this toward the end of the uh, 19th century, uh, there were about 2 million old uh, uh, former slaves still left. Uh, the population was getting old and was dying out. So it was not an enormous amount of money. If you talk about the number of people, there was a sliding scale as you went down younger. And they sent petitions. Uh, they got enough money. They had 300,000 members, according to the federal government, who were dues-paying members. This wasn't according to her. It was according to the federal government. It was the largest organization of Black people that had existed up to that time. And maybe even now, I don't know. But in any case, the federal government got very excited about and angry about what she was doing because white people wrote to the, the pension bureau and said, she's upsetting these people and they think they're gonna get some money and we know they're not gonna get any because nobody's ever gonna give them anything. So she should be stopped as they put it, uh, that she's running the Negroes wild. So what they did was they concocted a mail fraud claim against her that she was sending out mail asking for people to become members and they were paying 25 cents a month if they had it in dues to support this organization and that she should have known this was the fraud, this is what gets you. She should have known that the federal government would never give black people anything. <laughs> and if she knew that, why was she going around here organizing people to do what she knew could never happen? That is fraud, they said. And so they convicted her of using the mails to send out flyers engaged in fraud. And they claimed that she was rich. She lived in a shotgun house in down of what is the Gulch now in Nashville, which used to be a slum. I used to live in there when I was a child. Um, and in fact, uh, they, she had no money really <laughs> or anything. And they convicted her in the federal district court. They're all white jurors. She went to prison but they had chapters all over the country. Wherever there were any black people, we found chapters. And the cause was taken up by Marcus Garvey. And the same thing happened to Marcus Garvey that happened to Galley House. Yeah, they that's interesting. I was going thing. to say it reminds yeah. me of the UNIA. Yes, right? they said, we're gonna use the same thing against him. And so they accused him of using the mails to defraud because at a time when he knew that black people weren't going to get anything, <laughs> here he was out here trying to organize people <laughs> to do something, which is what she did. And we know what happened to Marcus Garvey. The important thing, though, is that after she served her time and she went home to Nashville, 
I found out that there were chapters that were still working all around the country, in Atlanta and other places. She believed in mutual assistance, self-help. So they helped the sick, buried the dead. They did all kinds of things, in, in, including this. Bills were introduced into Congress over and over again. They actually followed through. They were put in the pension committee. They weren't voted out, but they're there, and they're up in the National Archives. When she got out of prison, she went home and became a washerwoman again. <laughs> and then she uh, died of uh, cancer that the physician said that she had no medical treatment uh, support and is buried there in Nashville in Mount Ararat. Now, her movement, her spirit went through Marcus Garvey up to Queen Mother Moore, who became the latest after that woman who was a leader in this movement. And Queen Mother Moore came out of the New Orleans chapter of the ex-slave pension movement. You can see the continuity in all of these people through the years. I traced the Garvey chapters and the people who were in them and where they were, and they, most of them had been in the ex-slave pension movement. And when I wrote the book, people sent me badges and all kinds of things from their relatives. They didn't even know what they were. They were in the ex-slave pension movement. So the continuity of the cause exists and the continuity and the spirit of it and it's so interesting that H.R. 40, that John Conyers worked so many years to get passed. Finally, we get it out of committee. That doesn't mean it's not time to say shout hallelujah. <laughs> but in fact, that movement has taken place and that too is in the spirit of Callie House. The audience needs to remember there was no social security. So when Callie right. House was asking for pensions for elderly people, these were people whose their end of lives were not secure. And also, as you say, she's a remarkable woman, but she's a remarkable woman who produced a movement and that movement continues to pay dividends, right? It has flowered, it has generated other things. It has produced you know, calls for legislation that we're still talking about. As a final question before we go to our next segment, I wonder what, what are the kind of obstacles that a contemporary kind of calls or movements for reparations face and are they similar to the ones that the ex-slave or reparations movement faced? Well, the first thing about reparations is that a lot of black people who are doing well off themselves are not supportive of reparations because some of them have said to me, even and written to me and said that we shouldn't be asking anybody for anything. We can stand on our own two feet. I'm doing fine. I'm a physician or I'm a lawyer. I've got a business. I'm doing great. So it's not thinking about the all-encompassing na nature of what the movement would do and the whole idea of getting rid of the wealth gap and all the things that uh, Darity and Mullen uh, write about. Uh, so that's one problem. The other problem is that it would probably, people say, it would cost a lot of money. Well, you know, we had, as I said, about 1.92 million people that Callie House was talking about at $15, which was nothing, and they didn't want to do that. Uh, that's a, a barrier to it. Trying to get politically people who say things like, we didn't have any slaves. Uh, my granddaddy didn't have any slaves. So we don't know what you people are talking about. And what did black people do? They need to read not only Darrington Bowen, but they need to read Randall Robinson's The Debt, 
so that they can see what people did. They need to read the Cali House book so they can see Crazy Mac, who's almost 90 years old, who's still working with the same, same family she worked with as a slave because she has nobody to support her. They need to see that the economic development of the country in the 19th century proceeded from all the work that all these people who had been slaves had done. But the barriers are political. The barriers are people talking about, well, who's going to benefit? And we need to argue about, you know, which people. In, in the bill that Callie House was talking about, anybody who was black who had been in the country uh, before 1861 was included. All of those questions can be asked if we get this commission where they can be discussed and debated. Also, the question about how do we fit in what state and local governments have done and is that part of reparations? These questions can be asked, but fundamentally it is a, a, a part of, it's, it's a cause of justice. And the final point, is that I've been asked by many people, why don't we get reconciliation instead of reparations? You know, why don't you, you know, make a speech and tell people that we ought to just have like they did in South Africa? Well, I'm very familiar with what they did in South Africa. I was part of the anti-apartheid movement and I'm very much involved. And I know that reconciliation in South Africa did not solve the problems of poverty and all of the despair that all those poor black people had. It gave them the vote but the vote by itself doesn't create uh, ending the economic uh, problems that people yeah. have. And reconciliation isn't reconciliation if people don't contend with their history and with their present and make different choices going forward. Absolutely. So, thank you so much for this. Thank you. Um, and all of your work and every single thing about you. And thank Lindsay, you. we're gonna send it back to you. Mary Frances Berry, Adrian Lynn Smith, thank you. Wow, that was a phenomenal conversation. Let's just say that we're all here today in the spirit of Callie House. Our next guest has done some of the most detailed work to date when it comes to how much reparations would cost the country financially. And his interest in the topic came about from personal experience, but not experience here in the U.S. My name is Thomas Kramer, and I grew up in the German town of Tübingen um, in the southwest of Germany. 20 years ago in Germany, Thomas Kramer had a conversation that changed his life. He met a retired couple from Israel, and their families became friends. The man's name was Mietzu, and he was born in Krakow, Poland. It was during a family dinner that Mietzsche suddenly opened up and told us the story of his youth. As a young man, um, teenager, he went through five concentration camps and a death march, and he told us in shocking detail what happened. Mietzsche was the only one in his entire family to survive the Holocaust. I had always dreamed about the possibility of telling a survivor how ashamed I felt about our German history. And here I was basically at a loss for words and um, tears were running down my face. And he was surprised to see me reacting that way because he told me that uh, my face and my physique, it reminded him of the SS guards. And 
the idea that a person like that could have actual feelings was moving to him. Thomas Kramer's grandparents were part of the generation that witnessed the rise of the Nazis. He believes his family on his father's side were Nazi sympathizers. His mother's side was critical of the regime, but they never spoke out against the Nazis. He once asked his grandma, did you know what was happening? And she looked at me with really sad eyes and said, no, we didn't know. But as he learned more about the history of the Holocaust, his grandmother's words became harder to swallow. Word of mouth must have spread and it must have spread to my grandmother as well. So I was thinking, you know, I love her, but I don't believe her. I I think they did know. So that's very painful. Thomas couldn't stop thinking about Mietzsche's decision to return to Germany. How could a person who went through this horror in his youth find it in his heart to move back to Germany in his retirement, trusting young Germans like me at the time and Germany as a country enough to believe us when we say never again? Never again. Thomas Kramer says that's where reparations come in. He didn't know much about reparations, but he discovered that his country had been paying Mietu a pension for years. The fact that my government had taken responsibility and at least instituted this symbolic pension, that, that meant a lot to me. And that's why I got interested in reparations. It's not, it's not like blood money where you make a payment and then you never talk about it, but it's a door opener. Thomas Kramer, welcome to the Ark of Justice. Thank you very much. Okay, I have to know how your experience in Germany led you to become engaged in studying reparations for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Well, I learned about the Holocaust in every school subject, and I learned how to identify with my country uh, with the positive sides and the negative sides at the same time. And when I came to the United States and I became an American citizen, I had that same habit of looking at our collective history and slavery is part of it. It undoubtedly gave the United States the startup capital for it to attract um, immigrants that came in later, like myself, seeking opportunity in the United States. So um, I I naturally identified with that question, the question of, of race and racism implicit and explicit racial attitudes and how they influence um, people's opinions on race-related matters and race-related policies. And one of the policies I was interested in because of my experience with Miechu was um, uh, reparations. So I started doing research about it at a time when there was no no party taking up the mantle for reparations and it was basically a a topic that was still not in the mainstream. So what What might the U.S. learn from the German experience? Maybe there's two things. One one thing, a positive thing that I think the United States could learn from the German reparations example is that to pay reparations early, as early as possible, and not wait and postpone because the debt only piles up. 
and it uh, relegates generations of um, of the uh, of the harmed side of having to grow up in poverty and in destitution. So um, for both sides, I think it's better to start early rather than later. Um, on the negative side, I think the United States can also learn how not to do it from Germany. Um, mm. It's a very baroque process to apply for reparations in Germany. You have to prove that you've been harmed and in what concentration camp you were and what health uh, consequences you suffered in order to get a small symbolic pension. Um, and there is no letter of apology from the government. It's all very bu bureaucratic language and it's that cold bureaucratic language that was part of the problem. So um, I think the United States has a better example of how to do it when we look at Japanese American World War II internment reparations, which came with a check and a apology letter. And I think that's a much more elegant way of doing it. Okay, so what are the different ways that you've calculated how much reparations would cost the US? Okay, there's various estimations, estimation methods, and I only looked at estimation methods for slavery in the United States. So that excludes uh, colonial, it excludes discrimination after slavery, not because these things are not important, but because much more research would have to be done. So mm -hmm. I took advantage of the fact that there is a lot of historical records about US slavery, you know, the census records and uh, information about historical wages. Three basic methods that have been developed to estimate that debt is land-based reparations based on the current value of 40 acres and a mule, price-based methods based on slave prices as a signal how much value a slave owner attached to owning a slave, so how much they could earn from owning a slave, and that was published in Richard F. America's groundbreaking volume, uh, The Wealth of Races. Um, and then I developed a method that I call the wage-based estimation method, where I'm uh, taking the perspective of the enslaved, how much control did they lose over their lives? They lost control over all 24 hours of the day. So mm -hmm. what would a slave owner have had to pay that person in, in free, uh, free labor market uh, wages at the time to be on call for 24 hours a day? And those wages historically are tiny, like two cents or eight cents per hour, very small and very conservative. But with that, I came up, well, all estimation methods end up in the multiple trillion range. Um, so um, it, it would be enough to close the black-white wealth gap um, comfortably um, if that debt was paid, although it was computed very conservatively. Okay, so you talking to me about those different calculations is going to really help us out in this next segment of our program. But Thomas Kramer, I want to thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate you sharing your experience and your research. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Sandy and Kirsten, let's just quickly review all we've heard about today. We've heard about local movements, historical efforts to gain reparations, um, how another country, Germany, has approached reparations. Okay, but in your book, From Here to Equality, you have mapped out what a potential reparations program in the U.S. would look like. Will you please unpack that for us and tell us how it would work? Gladly. Happily. You want to start? <laughs> so, so what are the nuts and bolts of the American reparations program? First, who is eligible? So mm -hmm. for us, there's a lineage standard and there's an identity standard. The individual would need to prove that they were descended from at least one person 
enslaved in the United States, right? Um, that's the lineage standard. Then they would need to have self-identified as Black, African-American, Afro-American, or Negro uh, on a legal document at least 12 years prior to the enactment of a reparations program or uh, a reparations commission. Uh, what is the objective? The objective uh, is the, elim uh, the elimination of the racial wealth gap. You know, wealth is the best single indicator of the cumulative impact of white racism, a transfer of resources across generations. This is what was denied the newly emancipated black people after the civil war. Uh, we want to emphasize that uh, wealth and income are two different things because uh, people frequently confuse the two. Uh, income is a flow of resources that's primarily associated with people's earnings, but wealth is the difference between what we own and what we owe, our assets minus our debts, and wealth is something that we can use if there are losses in income that are expected or unexpected. Uh, so wealth is an economic measure that best captures individual, family, and household well-being. It's a primary indicator of economic security. An individual with greater, greater amount of wealth has a greater degree of financial agency over their lives. Uh, people who have wealth can make choices that are unavailable to people who live without it. Wealthier families can leave bequests to their uh to their next generations and enable them to have a, a greater degree of financial or economic security. And then reparations would prioritize direct payments. Black American descendants of US slavery should have discretion over the use of the funds. In redress programs abroad, we talked uh, briefly about some of them. And in the United States, direct payments were determined to be the preferred path. Germany made cash payments to the victims of the Holocaust, $80 billion before the pandemic, and an additional $662 million was decided to be given in 2021. Uh, the US government made and continues to make restitution to those victims and to their families, even though they were not the perpetrators. In the US, Japanese Americans who were unlawfully incarcerated during World War II received direct payments. Initially, only the living victims were deemed eligible, but ultimately the heirs of victims who had died before reparations could be made also uh, received cash payments. Um, the US Department of Justice's Office for Victims of Crimes set aside $8.3 million for the victims of the Boston Marathon bombing attack. Direct payments were made to um, the 9-11, uh, the victims of the 9-11 terrorist attacks as well. Direct payments is a time-honored method for settling a debt, and that is what should be done in this case as well. There's precedent. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And the debt must be paid by the federal government. It must finance reparations because, as we've suggested earlier, it's the culpable party. And in fact, uh, as, as we also mentioned a bit earlier, it's only the federal government that truly has the capacity to pay the debt. And the federal government's ability to do that should be very, very evident to us now uh, in the aftermath of the uh, CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan, where virtually overnight, the federal government has mobilized huge sums of money uh, without raising taxes. And, and we think the same thing can be done here. Uh, in the final chapter of our book, we attempt to sketch some ways in which 
uh, reparations might be paid by the federal government without increasing taxes on anyone. Part of the problem may be just the difficulty of wrapping our brains around that 12 to you know, $14 trillion figure. If one incredibly generous person contributed $1 billion per month to the Black Reparations Fund, that's $12 billion per annum, it would take 8.3 centuries to reach $10 trillion. Only the federal government can allocate this sum. You know, um, and I, I think a, a final important point we want to make in this context is given the way in which we have described what we believe a reparations program should look like, unfortunately, legislation like H.R. 40 in Congress is not going to get us from here to there. It's not designed to create or craft a program that would have the types of characteristics that would provide direct payments to black Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States of a magnitude that would eliminate the racial wealth gap. And so as a consequence, we're actually somewhat nervous about the way in which HR 40 has been written and what the effects will be if it actually is adopted. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because we did promise we would circle back to it. Um, HR 40, I believe was first introduced in 1989. Can you just give us a quick one sheet explainer about, you know, what what it is, what it is designed to do and what it won't do? So it's designed to create a study commission to look at America's relationship with Black people. But it focuses very, um, you know, very strongly on slavery. You know, one of the things that we're concerned about is, you know, not slavery, slavery reparations, that this whole epoch of American history uh, is responsible for where we are today. You know, and this and this is we make the case for reparations based not solely on slavery, but also on 100 years, nearly 100 years of legalized segregation or Jim Crow and all of the atrocities that continue to be um, um, you know, visited upon black Americans. So that's that's you know one one issue with it. Um, HR forty does not specify who the eligible recipients uh, would be. It does not target um, the elimination of the racial wealth gap as a goal. It does not uh, specify that cash payments should be made to the eligible recipients. Um, it, it it does not tell us that the federal government is the responsible party. HR 40 is entirely open-ended in terms of what type of report the commission could generate. And there's some structural issues in the nature of the bill itself that gives us some pause about what type of report would be generated. But the fact that there are no directives for the commission to meet certain types of objectives in the proposals that they design means that we don't really know what we're going to get. Uh, we could get a housing voucher program on a national basis, like what they've done in Evanston, uh, or we could get a more refined or well-developed apology to all Black Americans without having the substantive act of redress that would, uh, that would eliminate the racial wealth difference in the United States. The new, new revised H.R. 40, because <laughs> uh, this is now at least the fourth, the fourth version the, the iteration of H.R. 40, does tell us a great deal about how uh, they plan to proceed. And okay. I think, you know, the, 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 the devil is in the details. And I think it's really important. I, I would hope that everyone who uh, is present today will immediately 
uh, obtain a copy of H.R. 40 and read it for yourself. The version that was the version that was passed last night. night. I need to do that. Actually, I want to get back to your plan because I'm curious, what would you say are, I guess, like the key obstacles to rolling a reparations program out as you have designed? And what are the arguments that you still get when you tell people exactly how it would work? Like, what's the pushback? The obstacles are associated with two sets of misperceptions that people have. And I think that if we could correct those misperceptions, we could move the attitudes further along the road towards supporting reparations. And the first of these misperceptions concerns the historical record of slavery, the Civil War, and the Reconstruction period. It's a historical record that has been distorted and manipulated by the likes of the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Daughters of the American Revolution. They've created a false historical narrative uh, that essentially paints a glowing picture of the Confederacy as this uh, magnificent and dignified effort to uh, preserve the authority of individual states in the United States, rather than giving an honest, uh, uh, an honest characterization of the Confederacy as a traitorous operation that was intended to preserve slavery in the United States. So, so that's the first set of misperceptions. The second set of misperceptions concerns why we have racial inequality or racial wealth inequality in the first place. Yeah. And I think many, many Americans are, uh, are, are, are caught up with the perspective that the racial wealth gap in the United States is a consequence of bad decisions or bad judgments that have been made by Black Americans about investment and, and financial, financial choices, uh, when in fact, it's actually national policies that have favored white wealth accumulation and have driven black wealth decumulation that lie at the heart of the racial wealth gap. And, and once we begin to have an accurate narrative of why we are where we are today, then it may become possible to have uh, a greater prospect for, for reparations for black American descendants of US slavery becoming a reality. One thing that these two different uh, you know, trains of thought have in common, you know, this sort of dismemory, this uh, this calculated distortion and misrepresentation of our history, and then the misperceptions about you know what the racial wealth gap is, that this, you know, how it was created and how large it is, all of that is about maintaining this ideology of white supremacy. Um, Twenty years ago, uh, in a survey, only four percent of white Americans were supportive of a program of reparations. Then, sixteen years later, uh, so four years ago that number had jumped up to about 16%. Then at the end of last summer, that number had jumped to just over 30%. So we're moving in the right direction. Now, we're, we don't have a crystal ball, so we don't know if the trend will continue in that, uh, in that direction. But we do know that um, you know, reparations for Holocaust victims uh, were achieved with an, a lower degree of support. Um, so there is a precedent for that. Now, the, you know, the, the two uh, populations are not identical. I don't want to make that, uh, don't want to suggest that at all. But I, yeah, I do think it's important. The conditions were very different. The conditions were very different. But I think it's important to note that it is not always uh, a, a requirement that you have, you know, you know overwhelming, you know, support. Um, this, is, this is why we're having these conversations, because we are trying to, um, 
you know, make more information available, uh, to encourage others to, to do their own research. Um, you know, education is really, really important. I want to bring somebody into the spotlight right now, because among the, the hundreds of folks that are in our audience today is someone special. Ajane Clemens is a Sanford School of Public Policy PhD candidate. And she's been watching, as we've been talking, folks who have questions about um, things they've seen and heard. Ajane, are you with us? Could you share some of those questions now? Thank you so much. Such an honor to be here. To Abdullah's uh, question, is there anyone that's getting it right? Are there any set of policymakers or proposals that are even remotely coming close to what it is? Uh, I think we, we, we like uh, Representative Barbara Lee's proposal for a truth commission, which uh, I think would play a valuable role in terms of setting the historical and the present record straight. Uh, because we have a, a, a tremendous amount uh, that we have to address that's associated with anti-Black police violence. And we like to make use of, a, of, a, of an analogy that was created by Malcolm X, where he talks about a situation where a knife is plunged nine inches into his back, and he makes a distinction between the knife being pulled out and the wound being healed. And we think that state and local governments have a tremendous array of steps that they can take to pull the knife out. That is to stop the damages and harms that they are conducting through their ongoing policies. But that's distinct from actually compensating the community for the effects of the knife being plunged into your back healing the wound. And that's where reparations comes into play. And we've argued that that's something that has to happen at the federal level. I mean, we would support, uh, you know, initiatives like that of Durham, North Carolina's racial equity task force mm -hmm. program, uh, which clearly, you know, identifies it not as reparations. Uh, but again, this is simply the, the task force recommendations. We will have yet to see what the city of Durham will do with that report. How, how much of reparations is addressing the past and how much of it is, is being solved today or solving the problems of today? Well, it's the problems of today insofar as the existing racial wealth gap is something that creates an immense burden for current Black Americans. And so it's a consequence of accumulation of these past events but it is a present moment in which we're trying to address the victimized status of a community that is descended from people who were enslaved in the United States. And so it's, it's, it's for today. It's about today. I mean, our hope is that those payments would be made in total within 10 years. Yeah. Um, and that would be it, you know, as long as there were no new rounds of atrocities visited upon Black people. Yeah. As long as the knife has also been pulled out. Pulled out. Yeah. yeah. And reparations is the healing salve for the wound. 
Ajane, thank you so much for monitoring all the questions. I know we have many more, um, and there's so much more to talk about. And we we have already laid out a lot of this information in our series, The Arc of Justice. If you haven't listened, I highly recommend you go and check it out. If you've already heard them, I would love it if you shared it with a loved one. Um, We really appreciate all the support that we've received talking about this topic this season. Uh, And with that, I would just want to say thank you again to Kirsten Mullen and Sandy Darity, the authors of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. And for everybody that joined us today, have a great day. And there you have it. That's a wrap. The Arc of Justice Moving from Here to Equality is a series from the Ways and Means podcast from Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. The series is co-produced by North Carolina Public Radio WUNC and Duke professor William Darity Jr. and folklorist and arts consultant Kirsten Mullen. Their book is called From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. I highly recommend it. It's so good. We have lots of resources at our website, waysandmeansshow.org, including links to the books and articles that we reference and episode discussion guides. That's waysandmeansshow.org. Special thanks to our guests, Cicely Fleming, Mary Frances Berry, and Thomas Kramer. Thanks also to Adrian Lentz-Smith and Ajene Clemens. This entire series was masterfully produced by Carol Jackson, Allison Jones, and Malu Frusan Nori, with Candace Manriquez Wren, Stacia Brown, Matt Majak, Aaron Blanding, and Johnny Vince Evans. Original music for this episode was produced by Youth in Durham, North Carolina, in collaboration with Black Space and Only Us, featuring the work of Ariane, DJ Dede, Jam, King Sean, Lil Monsta, Pierce Freelon, Rem, The Beast, and Zone. Additional original music for this episode was produced by Solomon Fox, appearing courtesy of Forging the Musical Future, FTMF Talent. Season six of Ways and Means is made possible through support from the Duke Office for Faculty Advancement, thanks to funding from the Duke Endowment. If you've learned something from our series, we would love to hear from you. We're on Twitter at Ways and Means Show. Or please share the podcast with your loved ones and community. I'm Lindsay Foster Thomas.